0: Hello everyone, welcome to the Talking Pharmacy podcast, where we look back at what's been happening in pharmacy over the past week or so. My name is Richard Thomas, I'm the editor of Pharmacy Magazine. Join me on the pod this week are Rob Daracott, Arthur Walsh and Neil Trainus, editors of P3 Pharmacy, Pharmacy Network News and Independent Community Pharmacists respectively. So, on the pod this week, we talked to James Tibbs from the award-winning AR Pharmacy down on the south coast in our Pharmacist on the Frontline slot. As usual, we have Good Week, Bad Week and any other business. But let's start with a quick thank you to you, our listeners. We set another new record last week for the number of downloads, now well into four figures. And thanks for all your feedback, too, on Twitter. Uh, We take it all on board, good, bad or indifferent, we read everyone, so keep your comments and ideas coming in. Indeed, some of our loyal listeners are even getting a bit grumpy if they don't get their regular weekly dose of talking pharmacy. And I'm talking about you, Steve Mosley, uh, which is great. In all seriousness, we really appreciate the interest, and we've got some great pods coming up too. But let's start with good week, bad week. Uh, Rob who's had a good week in pharmacy for you uh
1: morning Richard um I think the NPA have had quite a good week I mean it's only we're only um three quarters no two-thirds of the way through their virtual conference uh but well done for getting the um Secretary of State on Monday I was trying very hard to work out when the last time that a secretary of state state, state spoke directly to a pharmacy conference was and I couldn't remember when that was possibly in the 90s, uh, so fair play. I've tuned into two or three of the other sessions, uh, seem to be interesting, covering a lot of ground. So I think that's that's a good thing to have done uh, and, and put on, and I hope they're getting a decent old response. Um, I also hope, just as a last thing, I hope that um, having the Secretary of State talking directly into camera and saying, the 3,000 pharmacies number is not something he recognises will actually now stop people from writing it on Twitter every five minutes. Because that's the third time now that government ministers have denied that number in public.
0: Yeah, he was quite categoric about that. Um, of course, I suppose it remains to be seen whether there'll be any action taken to, to sort the funding out, which would, would have an effect on pharmacy numbers. But yeah, well done to, to get Matt Hancock on. Uh, at the MPA conference, and yes, I enjoyed, uh, we're recording this on the uh, on the Thursday, and I enjoyed the, the right discussion last night as well. So, yet yeah, the, the virtual conference uh, from the MPA seems to be going pretty well at the moment, from where I can see. Um, so, Neil, who's had a, uh, a good week for you?
2: Well, I think it's been a, a pretty good week uh, for health workers in France. Um, the announcement, uh, Emmanuel Macron has... Uh, announced uh, that they're gonna get uh, more than a, a combined seven billion pound, seven billion euro pay rise uh, for leading the fight against COVID-19, which is, uh, well, an amazing um, kind of sign of, of appreciation from the the, the, the French government, you know, the, the role that they're playing in this in this pandemic, uh, marked contrast with the recognition of the government in this country uh, showing pharmacy and, and health workers, the role they're playing. Um, it's going to come into effect, we believe, on, on the on the 1st of August. Um, it will see the wages of health workers in France go, rise by 100, £166 pounds on average a month. Um, and uh, that's, I'm sure, they're, they're over the moon with that. I mean, he, it, it, it just reminds us once again, I suppose, what, what kind of, dis- say, disdain might be a too strong a word, but how unappreciated health workers in this country are, really, because... Um, the government well the unions here representing over one point three million n h s workers are actually have actually written to the government um calling for talks to begin on a pay rise for for workers here uh, and they're asking for that to take place before the end of the year um for for the fantastic role that the n h s here has, has has played in in the fight against covid i'm not holding my breath i don't, i don't suppose they are really as to whether those talks will happen so health workers in france um does that include Pharmacists working in private businesses, then. No, it's 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 the NHS, the French equivalent. equivalent. Yeah. So it's 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 real recognition of the role that they've played. I mean, for, obviously they clearly value what they, the role that NHS staff have played in this country it's somewhat different. Seven billion euros. That's 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 a lot of uh, that's a lot of
0: wonga. Fair play. Um, okay, Arthur, who's had a a good week for you?
3: Uh, my good week is sort of adjacent to Rob's. So uh, in the evening after Matt Hancock gave his address to the MPA conference and again distanced himself from the 3,000 figure uh, Conservative MP Bob Seely brought a debate on the importance of independent pharmacies and the importance of you know having them survive in local communities and it was just quite refreshing to hear in the Commons MPs to, I mean it was only a handful of MPs to, but to hear MPs talk about community pharmacies in an, not just an appreciative way but an informed way and um, they sort of understood the issues around funding and the impact that closures were, could have on communities and i thought that was um good to hear
0: yeah it was and and there's been a few of those in the debates about community pharmacy in the <laughs> commons recently isn't there so mps are definitely um much more informed about community pharmacy aren't they in the issues so yes um, we did follow that debate it was it was really interesting and, and talking of mps uh, for me, it's been a, a good week for Alex Norris, MP, the the Shadow Pharmacy Minister, uh, who, of course, we featured on the pod last week. And um, We've had lots of reaction to that interview. People did seem to be impressed with Alex and his support for the sector and his understanding of the issues. And as we remarked last week, he does seem to be someone very much on top of his brief. Now, plenty of people made the point that, well, he would say that anyway, wouldn't he? Opposition spokespeople can... Can say what they like, of course. And I'm sure there was an element of perhaps playing to the gallery in what Alex had to say. But nevertheless, I thought it was a very interesting uh, exercise, I suppose, to get an early insight into to current Labour Party thinking on pharmacy. Uh, the next general election is a long way away, but at the very least, I think pharmacists can be reassured that the government is going to receive some proper parliamentary scrutiny over pharmacy policy from Alex and the rest of, of Labour's health team. <coughs> Will he be pharmacy minister in four years' time after the next election? I mean, the odds must be against it, I think. But but I tell you what, that 80-seat conservative majority uh, doesn't look half as secure as it did pre-COVID. And who knows what the political ramifications will be for the government post-COVID, post-Brexit. If I were one of the pharmacy organisations, I'd be beating a path to Mr Norris's door, PDQ. So he's made an impressive start. He's up and coming. I think his appearance on the pod last week did his reputation no harm at all.
2: So, for me, a good week for Alex Norris. I think that's a pretty good shout, actually, Richard. I mean, uh, and I'll I just pick up on what Rob said about... Um, yeah, it's all it's great that the NPA managed to get um, Matt Hancock on board. and uh, He's the health secretary, after all. But I was quite disappointed. I don't know about you guys, but I was quite disappointed with Matt Hancock's inability, once again, to answer pertinent questions about the future of pharmacy, particularly the, 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 the one of the big questions around... The advanced funding and whether or not that's actually going to be—I
3: suppose as devil's advocate, that the negotiations are ongoing and he's—he's he's not going to say it on the air, is
2: he? Yeah, but I—I I think it's—it was just disappointing for me. He, 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 a lot of lot of platitudes. I think we've had a lot of shallow platitudes, and and, and Matt Hancock has, has I think been at the heart of that kind of shallowness. I think from the government during this pandemic, I think they've they've had a disaster. The government during this pandemic in a, in a variety of ways, um, and I just think that. Yes, it was good that the NPA got... It's not a criticism of the NPA at all. They got him on board. That's great. But I just think he was pretty poor, once again. I, didn't, I wasn't impressed with him with him. Uh,
3: definitely important to hold his feet to the fire and, and, you know, ask him about these issues. But can you imagine Jeremy Hunt having come out and said, I love pharmacies, I'm a big believer in pharmacies. It's not going to happen on my watch.
0: Yeah, it was a very... It was a kind of positive statement, I suppose, of intent. But he did drop a clangour, actually, I thought, about that... When he was asked about the advanced payments because he equated it to the retail side of, of pharmacy's business if you remember yes. you know he said yes. yes you know it's he was kind of implying that well it's been tough on the high street you know pharmacy's retail business has, has taken a bit of a hit uh, and he was he was luckily pulled up on that and he backtracked a little bit mark line it just yes. pulled him up on that and said look you know most of our members have 91 92 93 percent of the turnover is NHS, so. And I think that was, I thought it was quite a revealing slipper, if it was a yeah. slipper, because I think the government kind of equates the business model of pharmacy maybe to a boots type model, mm. where you do get a you know a, a large element of cross su- cross subsidy because of the, the yeah. retail side of yeah. the business. Not the case for for many pharmacies, and I think he I thought that was quite a revealing insight, and I'm glad Mark Lane picked, picked him up, up on it, it as yeah. I think did the uh, the independent. People, yeah, independent yeah. pharmacists who were kind of tuning into the conference, I think they were making that point on the q and A. I wasn't well. surprised by the slip-up yeah. at all.
2: I mean, it was just typical Hancock, really. I don't, think he's got, I don't think he's got an understanding of community pharmacy, a proper understanding of it. And you go back to what Rob mentioned about the comment Hancock made about the, uh, the, the 3,000 figure. is not a figure I recognise. We should be almost comforted by that. No, I don't think we should be. I don't think that allay... doesn't allay my fears, really. I don't think that Hancock has a real understanding of what community pharmacy... Or Pharmacy teams do day in day out, you know so I, I think he's quite a poor yeah. hell, secretary that's I a think.
3: good point. I mean he's not going to like physically close the pharmacies up, but it, no. is, it is about funding, isn't it what do you think rob
1: i I'm not saying that I'm not saying that we should take at face value you know a, yet another statement that he doesn't recognize a number. I just think it, given everything else that you've just talked about and the fact that he doesn't understand. He doesn't appear to understand how the pharmacy business is made up suggests to me that anything that gets in the way of clarifying that and getting a proper understanding, like banging on about this number, which is now four years old, five years old, um, just seems to me to get in the way of a, a sensible discussion about the reality of the real challenge. Uh, facing the sector, you know, with retail sales for many, such as they are, having dropped off a cliff, uh, and and this advance payment loan, um, you know, not not exactly filling the hole that pharmacies have, have have built up over the last four months, and that that's a real issue, and I think that. Right for Mark Lyonette to pick him up on that. And you need to now build on that and get, get to a point where you're having a dialogue about about the reality of it. It's, it's why that, you know, somebody like Alex Norris comes across as quite refreshing because he clearly appears to have understood some of the basics, which is a great place to start. And yes, he won't necessarily be the pharmacy, you know, very unlikely. If he's that good, he's unlikely to be a junior shadow level in this sort of brief for very long um, but we want to see more of that, we need to build on, on that kind of understanding
3: Can you remember there ever being a pharmacy minister who hit the ground running with that knowledge I mean they seem to be parachuted in mostly don't they?
0: Yeah I, I, I think I guess we said last week. It's quite hard to judge the effectiveness of a pharmacy minister, but I think you do have people there who seem to get it. Steve Bryan mm-hmm. seemed, to it. seemed to get it. Alistair Burt seemed to get it. Freddie Howe back in back in the day. Rob will remember that. Um, but there's kind of getting it, an ability to to kind of articulate mm-hmm. your views clearly in a public audience, it doesn't necessarily equate to you know being an effective runner of a department and. It's a junior minister's post. They're not there for very long. As you said last week, Neil, you know, what, yeah. what do they actually do? But you, you need to have your advocates, don't you? And I think the least you can say about Alex Norris is he seems to get it. And let's, let's give Matt Hancock a little bit of credit. Uh, there is a bit of, there's a profile, I think, that pharmacy's got at the moment, which we've all worked really hard as a profession, I think, and the professional bodies have worked hard to, mm. to push pharmacy forward. COVID has, has kind of brought a lot of these issues um into sharper focus let's see where we go i mean i agree with rob i think let's get let's stop talking about three thousand pharmacies but we need proper discussions and proper funding for the sector too because that's the thing that's going to secure the number of pharmacies at the end of the day so let's see some action from mr hancock and
1: his colleagues i mean here's a challenge richard um for for the future so at various points in this whole um the whole history of having a pharmacy minister. And it's not its not quite a pharmacy minister, but it's pharmacies within the brief of a particular minister. Pharmacy has um, floated between the second rank of ministers, so the one below the Secretary of State, and and the more junior ranks of ministers. And so when it was uh, David Mowat, I think it was very much in the kind of third rank. That high, Rob? Sorry?
0: Was he that, that high, third rank
1: Mowat? Uh, Yeah, I think he was a parliamentary undersecretary, wasn't he, as opposed to the Minister of State. His predecessor at at one point would have been Minister of State. And certainly when I was in the department, pharmacy was part of the Minister of State's brief. So not quite Secretary of State. We will know that pharmacy is being taken super seriously when the pharmacy brief is sitting with the Secretary of State. Because then, then the Secretary of State will have a will have to have a much better appreciation of pharmacy. Um, and at the moment, you know that that to me would be a, that would be kind of a something to be achieved. You know, if that happened, then we would know that pharmacy really was being taken as a as a crunch point of the uh, of the NHS.
2: But you say that, Rob. But I I I don't know about you, but I don't think pharmacy's even been taken seriously during this pandemic. I mean you, uh, we won't even go no, I don't think, yeah, we won't we even go on to the, the the debacle around PPE and the and Hancock's apparent forgetfulness over the um, benefits in, death in uh, uh, de- benefit service in uh, yeah. uh, death um, when he eventually said oh well, yeah pharmacy of course it's in, involved um, We won't even go there but you know you just you look at the role that pharmacy can play in a, in, a, in a in a in a crisis like this and you think the government hasn't and Hancock haven't even remotely Recognised this at all? I mean, they haven't. You know, they haven't allowed resourced, funded pharmacy to play a much bigger role in this pandemic. I'm talking. I'm talking about testing. They've got these remote hubs all over the country. These drive-through testing um, um, sites where people get tested. Well, why that? Why haven't community pharmacies been given the resources and the funding to provide this to people in their local communities? You know, instead of having all these drive-throughs everywhere. Well.
1: Well, Neil, because the, there's no, there's no there's no IT. How do you connect? Yes, I agree with you. In an ideal world, that would be fantastic. You've got twelve thousand, nearly twelve thousand uh, places networked across the country, every community, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But how on earth do you link them together into some kind of testing you testing uh, approach? And how do you? get pharmacy in a place to say if we're going to prioritise testing and yes, we don't even need to debate whether this government's prioritised testing or not because that's a, that's a completely different political argument. But if you're going to say we're going to prioritise and put it through pharmacies, there's a whole load of things that have to be sorted before you can do that. A really more a more interesting test, I think, will be whether we can hold the Secretary of State's words um, to, and hold him to account whether he's really serious about including pharmacies in the vaccination programs to come because there he said prospectively pharmacies have got a big a big part to play in that we're going to need every, you know all hands to the pump to get the country vaccinated if we get a vaccine for the for covid but a huge challenge around flu this coming winter season and and he's now said you know pharmacies are important for that well let's see how important they are because, we, you know, we're going to get back into that whole debate about who's going to do flu and how is it going to be done? You know, I, I, I think when you're caught on the hop with something like the pandemic and clearly the government was caught on the hop, I think it's much more difficult to set up a whole new system for that involving 12,000 sites. Whereas he's actually saying we've got 12,000 sites. They've already done flu for years. They're going to be really important in this in the winter to come. Well, let's see how important. Let's see the money where the mouth is. Let's see that all of the and everything that flows from that.
0: I agree with that. I'm not. I, I'm not too bothered about the test. The testing situation has just been too complicated from the start. And the, the Rob's right. There's no infrastructure. It, I just don't think it would have been remotely achievable. We're not even sure what value testing has at the moment. It's just too complicated. But. You know, the bellwether will be the flu service, definitely. And if we have to do a max vaccination programme quickly, they're going to need as many access points as possible, and that has to include pharmacies. So now is the time. We can talk about the flu service again. I think that this is going to come up in the next couple of weeks because it's going to be quite complicated to set up a system with social distancing and everything else and for pharmacy to continue its good work with flu. But nevertheless... You know, we have to start thinking about that now and pharmacists need to begin to plan. And if we do that, right, in the current environment, then absolutely um, the government does need to bring pharmacy fully into the fold for COVID vaccinations and that has to come with appropriate funding. Yeah.
3: And just on testing, you know, Think back to just how wildly busy pharmacies were in March and April. Can you imagine them wanting to stick swabs of people's noses on top of that? Well,
2: that, that, that's the whole... The, the point was, is, is that, yeah, absolutely, their workload is horrendous. We know that. But with resourcing, proper funding and proper sub- government support, it, I don't think it's that far-fetched. But, hey, you know... I'm, well, I'm asking, probably asking... too. No, it's, to it's
0: going to be a big issue. Uh, we're going to need to keep an eye on it, that's for sure. <laughs> So now it's time for our pharmacist on the frontline interview. And this week I'm talking to James Tibbs from AR Pharmacy in Totten near Southampton, which he runs with his wife, Shika. They really are a dynamic pharmacy couple practicing right at the leading edge with an award-winning service-based approach to business. Nevertheless, COVID presented them with some significant challenges. And this is what James had to say. Thanks for coming on the pod, James. The last time I saw you, you were on the evening news at the height of the pandemic, when the cameras of South Today paid a visit to your pharmacy, I have to yeah, say, sorry, uh, yeah. you, you looked a bit stressed, uh, not surprisingly. <laughs> there were patients and prescriptions everywhere. Um, it looked hectic. What was the, the COVID experience like for you?
4: Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it, as for everyone, it's, it, was, it was just the unpredictability of it. You couldn't plan for this at all. Like, yeah, we had no idea this was going to be at this kind of level. Um, so, yeah, it, it was... Insane. I like to think of myself as a very kind of, you know, the level of business we have is, is very hard to in any way So we have to be prepared and organised everything like that. But this was like another level and you just couldn't prepare for it. You couldn't organise yourself quick enough. It seemed to just suddenly happen. Um, so, yeah, and I think everyone, talking to our friends and, uh, you know, other contractors is the same. You know, we tried, we just couldn't predict the level of uh, intensity. Um, so, yeah, it's been, it was very tough. Those, those few weeks were really tough
0: and how did you and your, your staff cope with the onslaught really
4: um, just shut the doors basically no, <laughs> <laughs> no it, it was it, you, you wish know, I'll be honest at the beginning we, we were just kind of shell Um, at the level of uh, I mean our prescriptions went up I think it was 35% um, so talking like you know we submitted over 35,000 items in one month but in that those two weeks we submitted about we did about 20, 20 plus which is insane um so and obviously i had staff on furlough as well That's the other thing so a few of the staff had to self-isolate um so we already limited staff plus an increase in volume um so you know I, I think in hindsight you know there's probably things and i'm sure everyone would say this you know there's things that you could could have done better but i think we coped because we managed to you know, Use, I'll be honest with you. We used use the community. The community were fantastic. They were very uh, obviously you get the odd few, but generally speaking, they were very supportive. They were just grateful we were open. To be honest, that, that, that there was someone there that could speak to and get advice and you know get their prescriptions and you know just you know a friendly voice in the community that they could they could turn to. So we had we had we had no choice. We had to stay. but that there was a, a duty there. So. Yeah.
0: yeah. No, I, I mentioned in the introduction, you, you provide a lot of services from AR Pharmacy. <laughs> you, you've got a, a travel yeah. health clinic. She has a very successful medical aesthetics practice that mm, she runs. Mm. Did you have to change your your business model during the crisis to deal with the increased prescription demand, if nothing else?
4: Oh, yeah. I mean, 100%. I mean, I'll, as you know, we are very services driven. So, you know, we have staff. We have pharmacists employed precisely for that. Um, so suddenly they were just t- taken out of that role because you know you physically couldn't do it anyway but also because of the risk we just had to stop it straight away um so suddenly we were all in dispensary dispensing prescriptions checking prescriptions which is it's kind of it was kind of odd actually it's kind of like going back to the you know when i first started like 20 years ago when i was like 17 18 um i'll show my age now but she <laughs> <laughs> um, so could have great into the Just literally just dispensing prescriptions and that, so it was, it was challenging, but it was actually quite exciting in a way, In a weird way, when we look back in hindsight, we you know the adrenaline was going, you know, big time. We were like just trying to battle through these prescriptions and um, yeah, but that was literally all we were doing was prescriptions. Uh, even the the in terms of advice, we would. Ask patients to give us a call, uh, but that was the other thing. It wasn't just the prescriptions; the phone was non-stop, and everyone said this. Well, all my friends said this: like, the phone was non-stop. I've never known it like this before. It was literally as soon as you stop the phone, you pick up another phone. So we we're literally answering phone calls and dispensing prescriptions. So all those services just stopped. Uh, I mean, to give you an idea, I mean we would do probably about seven to eight travel consultations a day, um, and suddenly it's zero. Uh, so you know, it's, it's suddenly our, our work patterns were completely different. Um, yeah.
0: So. And what's the, the state of the business now? I mean, now you back to normal, it, um, in terms of your work yeah, mix. I mean, I'm sure you, you're well, probably not doing as much travel clinic stuff maybe, but, but is there yeah, another element to the a, business?
4: It's been a bit of a People have been, um, really missing going away. So, um, you know, there's suddenly been a bit of a surge in the last week or two. Uh, so we are get, getting back to it. Uh it's never going to be the same as you know but it's it's you know you work around what you've got so we have the ppe we kind of managed it we used to do like one of the reasons why it's services is successful is i think is because it's because the in service so it's just that convenience so now we're kind of almost forced to plan it um so it's kind of changing your model in that sense because that you, you don't want suddenly three or four people turning up for once once travel clinic advice and vaccinations it's, you just can't you know it's just not safe to do that anymore so it's it's my mindset and it was a it was a real it's a real learning curve for me actually because I'm very you no know, good to drive go go but you really have to plan it now. Um, and it's kind of almost forcing our business to change completely, which is fine, you know, we'll, we'll work with it. Um but it's it is it's difficult from a personal level as well, you know, to, to act like that. Um, I'm very much in the moment that that serve customer now to do it. Um, so yeah, it is, it is interesting, but it is starting to pick up again now. So we're just, and what we're doing is, and I think anyone that is very service driven, the best boss that gives us do it gradually. I know we've all obviously been hit, you know, financially as well. Um, but if you try and do everything straight away you're going to collapse and you'll you know the, the rest the core of the business the descriptions etc all you have to do it more measured now so we're gradually introducing the ones that we think are priorities so like travel with dhd and things like that and then the things that perhaps not as in demand like weight loss connecting things we're kind of waiting a little bit and going to gradually introduce those so that's my model.
0: you know hopefully it'll work um, and we'll, we'll just time will tell i guess yeah, it, it it seems a sensible approach. It's a very interesting change in, in the dynamic, isn't it, Um, within mm, the business? Yeah. I mean, looking ahead, um, you're always pretty near the top of the National League table when it comes to, to flu vaccinations. Now, Matt Hancock yeah. wants the coming season to be the biggest ever for flu jobs, but it's going to be yeah. challenging, isn't it, for pharmacy with the, the COVID situation, social distancing and, yeah. and things like that. So where are you yeah. with your planning for the flu season this year?
4: Yeah, I mean, look it's always busy anyway but the thought of um you know, the increased need for it i think people are really i think everyone's gonna want a flu jab i think it's gonna get to that level um, so yeah again we are we're trying to think i'll be honest we haven't really thought of the solution about it's getting it's one of those unpredictability things it's like i've got a feeling as soon as the food jobs come out we'll suddenly get this massive influx and it's about managing the public, to make sure that they're safe as well as ourselves, so we're not getting a big influx again. Uh, We're we're lucky we've got a few consultation rooms, but I know a lot of pharmacies just have the one, so you really do have to plan for it, but making sure we've got, we've really stocked up on our PPA, so I don't want to run out, that's the main thing. Um, Telling people to uh, phone up and book appointments if they can, Um, so we're already starting to I know seems really crazy early, but we've already started to create a list of patients to kind of try and stagn them to put them in because uh, the need is already there. So I did again advice to anyone out there to start doing it now so you are prepared. I uh, so I know it sounds really early, and it, it is, but I just I want to be prepared for it, um, which we don't normally do. We normally just open the floodgates and people come and we just do it as they come come along, and it's always works like that. That's what I say too about that walk in service model. It's completely different. You just can't work like that. Um, so yeah, I think I think I think we'll be fine. I'll tell you it in a six months time.
0: But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it, 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 it's going to be interesting, isn't it? And of course, we're still waiting it for, it, for, for 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 guidance from NHS England and yeah, that. But but exactly, you're right. The, exactly. the the dynamic from going to like a walking service to more of a planned, organised service that that is quite a big mm. shift for pharmacy. It'll be interesting to it's... see how you know how that plans out. But, mm. And finally it's mean, go, go, go interesting go,
4: go. actually because our, our kind of usp i guess has always been you know convenience of and course. that kind of you know that's what's always put us apart that's when i whenever i talk to commissioners and things it's always been about well customers can come in anytime they want seek advice say, you know and suddenly now we have to rethink that and how do we think about still selling our services but in, be careful about how we're selling ourselves because we can't do physically can't do a walk-in service for most things anymore so it's about you know understanding how we sell that not just practicality-wise but how do we sell that to commissioners uh we want them to still commission services to us and they will need our support i know they will uh, but i think one thing that's really positive out of this is the uh, the view of pharmacy i mean i do feel like you know not it sounds like very um You know, like superiors or something. I don't think like that at all. But the amount of people, not just customers—I mean, customers have been fantastic—but commissioners, doctors, everyone has come and said, "What a fantastic job! How how on earth did you get through that?" As you've been amazing. I know a lot of my friends have been, and that's what makes it worth it. You know, that's you. You realise? I think now suddenly people are realising pharmacy is a massive, really powerful vehicle. We should be utilising it more. So I think Matt Hancock. Hopefully we'll see that, and we'll start to see more services come out of this.
0: Yeah, I mean, pharmacy's definitely has had a good crisis. You know, it's it's elevated its profile for sure because <clears> of the, the brilliant way that it's kind of piloted and looked after. Piloted its way through the crisis and looked after patients. Um, yeah. Let let hope so we can leverage that. You make a really good point about convenience and access, though. These are these are the twin pillars that we've marketed pharmacy services really? there is there will be a subtle change i think well actually yeah, not quite a congrats. big change for the for the reasons that you you've mentioned and that that mm-hmm. does have to be um explained you know quite quite carefully to, to commissioners doesn't it so it does, yeah yeah, you make yeah. a re- really good point there uh, and finally well james in the midst of all this madness you bought another pharmacy in bournemouth <laughs> well, tell us why have you done that tell us about that <laughs> Well, the I, I thing is, um, with these
4: things, you know, you got to look at opportunities as well. You know, it's been hard. Don't get me wrong, but you know, I've I've always wanted another one anyway. Um, and you know, if you've got the ability and you've got the, the staff that you trust, I mean, I'm from Bournemouth, so that really helps. You know, I know most of the pharmacists and staff in the area, the doctors and things. So, um, yeah, I did. I, I still see a massive value in pharmacy. and I love my job. You know, it sounds so corny, but just I love it. So. Even through all this, even through all the stress and everything, actually we came out the other side and was like, "Wow, we did an amazing job!" And everyone should pat themselves on the back. And yeah, this should be. I think we should make it a daily thing that people clap for us at seven o'clock. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's uh, that's funny, but that's such a positive way to end the interview as well. Um, thanks a yeah. lot, James. It's always good to talk to you. Yeah. Well done on the new business. Good, good luck with that. Uh, tell yeah, yeah, Sheikha yeah. to to book me in to get my lines done um, uh, <laughs> I've got a few more worry lines than I did before the crisis but uh, James Tibbs <laughs> it's been great to talk talk with you as That's always easy. Thank yeah, you very you much too. indeed
4: yeah,
0: Take care, take care. Cool. So who's had a bad week in pharmacy? Uh, well I'll kick off with this one It's been a, a bad week well it's been a terrible week actually for Lloyd's Pharmacy and Boots both announced restructuring plans With the threat of redundancies, in the case of Lloyds, actual redundancies with boots, uh, which intends to chop about 7% of its total UK workforce. Seems the cuts will mostly affect personnel uh, in Nottingham, but head office, There can hardly be anyone left at D90 these days, but also at store and regional level. Sadly, deputy and assistant manager roles, beauty and customer advisors, that kind of level. And of course, Boots is closing their optician stores as well. It seems that pharmacists, pharmacy technicians and medicine counter assistants aren't affected at this stage, which is, which is one positive. But this is clearly devastating news for those affected. It's not the first tranche of significant job cuts at our biggest pharmacy chain either in recent years. It just adds to the Covid carnage on the high street. Uh, Arthur, I think, reported on this retail sales at Boots, down by nearly half um, during the COVID crisis, and that's difficult for, for any business to absorb, and all on top of the pharmacy cuts as well. I don't think for a moment this is a problem just for the multiples. many pharmacy businesses now are probably running at a deficit, and this is clearly unsustainable. Uh, we talked earlier on, didn't we, lots of warm words from Matt Hancock about pharmacy's value, highlighted during the COVID crisis. It's now not enough the sector desperately needs bailing out. So it's a bad week for me, for Lloyd's, and a bad week for Boots, I'm afraid. Neil,
2: bad week for you? Uh, for, for me, I, I think it has to be the Royal Pharmaceutical Society. Um, and it emerged in the last few days that um, they, well, they don't apparently know what the ethnic breakdown of their, their membership is. Um, Robbie Turner, its director of pharmacy uh, a member experience, told uh, apparently told a zoom meeting on last month that uh, gdpr issues um were stopping the rps from getting data on not just the ethnicity of its membership but any prote- protected characteristics uh, but nevertheless you know it was something that uh, could threatened uh, could threaten its it, to undermine its equality and diversity strategy um and uh, if that's overstating it um it's certainly not great for them um apparently they got legal advice as to the as to why the gdpr issue was a big stumbling block for them and they weren't happy with that legal advice so um mo hussain who uh, i think we all know um an rps fellow who sat in on that zoom meeting said that they've got that they're going to get new legal advice fresh legal advice in a, in a, in an attempt to sort of really try and get around this um but it's certainly a big problem for them um the rps did tell us when we contacted them that um it, it does want to get better as an organization using data to help with its with its work and explore how they can assure uh, can, um, ensure that they have the information that they need to better understand the diversity of its membership, but this is clearly a big problem for them if they've launched a diver- uh, an equality and diversity strategy which they've been very big on um, since it was launched I think last year. if you don't know the ethnic breakdown of your membership, I think that's a bit of a quite a major hurdle to overcome.
0: and when you talked to them, did they confirm that because of GDPR reasons. No, they didn't.
2: No, they didn't. Um, in fact, we we put several questions to them, and um, they were quite evasive, um, and they and they didn't. Uh, they they didn't. We uh, we put we put it to them. You know, did Robbie Turner express these concerns in the meeting, and was it down to GDPR? And they didn't deny it, but they didn't actually come out and confirm it. So, um, it doesn't see. It seems like a problem. They they're gonna if they can't get around this problem, it it does pose a major challenge for their diversity
1: strategy i think i i i i find it really odd this whole question you know because i did a sir i've done a sur- at least one survey this week where the last four or five questions were the kind of standard questions that you get asked and there's always an option which says choose not to say you know i just find it bizarre that they think that the gdpr stops asking those kind of questions Seriously. Questions to
0: be answered then, I think. It's a very unclear situation. Yeah. Isn't it? Perhaps the society will be clarifying its position.
2: Well, they should do. They need to clarify this, I think. They need to tell members what's going on. They need to, it's not only a question of publishing the data once they get it. I mean, I know this is a bit separate to the, 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 the equality agenda, the ethnicity uh, subject, but they don't even publish the number of members they've got. And, you know, that's, I know that's a bit separate, but you know, I don't think they're very good at being transparent
0: no, and they they no. say they don't they don't never reveal membership numbers no. because it's commercially sensitive, which seems an odd phrase to use. Yeah. Really, I think they would just rather not say so. Oh. Contrast
3: that to the PDA,
2: <laughs>
3: very much of the spectrum.
0: PDA can't get its membership numbers <laughs> out quick enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Over, over thirty thousand at the like, moment. Oh, just send a text.
3: No. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: Arthur, bad week for you then.
3: Um, I'm not sure what you call the mask mask anti, anti-maskers or mask deniers, but uh, this whole debate has come to England now um, with the news that uh, from, is it Friday week? Yes, it'll be required, yeah, it will be required to wear them in shops and pharmacies and sort of um, indoor areas where you come into contact with people who you don't see on a regular basis, so I think officers are exempt. And so a lot of people are really kicking off about this. They're saying, I'm not going to be muzzled. You're not going to get me wearing a mask. And it just seems crazy. Uh, I mean, it's not a perfect solution to trans- to ending transmission of COVID. But there does seem to be evidence behind it. I just don't see why uh, people are so, I don't know, obstreperous about this. Uh, and the interesting thing about it from a psychological point of view is that it seems to divide along sort of Brexit-Trump lines, <laughs> whereas I don't... I mean, I can't fathom that. Like, riddle me that. <laughs> it's, a
0: very, it's a very divisive issue, isn't it's it? Easy. And, um, you know, how, who is going to, you know, police it within the pharmacy? You know, from, from the 24th, um, you go into a pharmacy in England, you know, you've got to wear a mask. Well, they, Potentially,
2: that's a very tricky thing to no, to monitor and manage for, for pharmacists and their team. Well, this should have been, the, as far as pharmacy is concerned, and we're not talking about other... Shops and what the government's agenda is on the twenty fourth. But as far as pharmacies are concerned, this should have been the case as soon as the pandemic started. You know, people coming into pharmacies should have been should be should be told to, to wear masks. Another example, perhaps arguably, of the government's le- just lack of recognition of not only what pharmacy does, but the dangers that frontline pharmacy staff have fa- faced with this, during this pandemic. They People seem, coming in yeah. should be wearing masks.
3: They do seem to drag these things out, and then when they do make a decision, it's gonna, it's in two, three weeks' time.
2: Yeah, yeah absolutely.
3: Yeah, I, I've not got a problem <laughs> with... Sorry, Rob,
0: I've, I've just... I've got, not, not got a problem with with masks at all, although I'd rather not wear when, obviously, in normal circumstances, but I'm not, I, I can see the merits of it. Um, it does seem counterintuitive in a way that when infection levels are, you know, are now going down, we're wearing them now and we weren't at the start, as I think Roy Lilly, we all know Roy Lilly, put it. Uh, government policy is a bit like the Eric Morecambe approach, sorry, to government policy. The government is p- putting in place all the right policies, but not necessarily in the right order.
2: Good, good old Roy. Good
1: old Roy. <laughs> <laughs> so, Rob, who's had a bad week for you? Uh, So bear with me I'm going to say bad week for the right review one particular aspect of it right so as we heard on the NPA's conference session last night there are a few worrying signs about the level of engagement with the review at the beginning now reviews like this organizational structures are not everybody's cup of tea. Right. But this is really important. This one's really important. And I think that the pharmacy organisations, particularly, dare I say, the NPA, perhaps, because it's the independent sector, I think, that's going to need help in working its way through this. um, Need to think very carefully about how they're going to engage with contractors. So I was trying to think of an analogy for the issue And I think that what you can see happening in the early responses is that let's use the analogy that people talk about that it'd be great if everybody sang from the same hymn sheet and that there was a single voice. So I'm going to use that analogy. Now, I think the temptation will be, and you can see it happening to start with, that the bodies will focus on the makeup of the choir and... So how many people, how many basses, how many tenors, how many altos, etc, etc. And, you know, whether the 40% and the 20% and the 40% are all in the right place. Very important in a choir. But what I think contractors and community pharmacists need to think about first is what tune do we want to sing? So maybe the way through this is that The temptation will be, I mean, all the management books tell you you that form should follow function, um, not form leading. And then everybody decides what it's all about afterwards. So maybe the opportunity to talk to contractors about what they would like the contract, for example, to be about, what they would like in five years time, the position to be might be a way then of working through and engaging people in a subject that they should be interested in, in thinking about how the right review will or will not help them get to that future state. Um, it's certainly something that I'll be thinking a little bit more of, having had my interest, you know, uh, pointed up by the by the conference session last night. Um, so yeah, not not you know, I'm I'm starting to worry already about the level of engagement with the review because it looks very sterile you know how many people meet and all the rest of it when actually it's about fitting pharmacy organizations for a future in which there is better accountability for the outcomes of a negotiation ultimately but then through the whole system uh, community pharmacy is positioned better not only to create its own future but deliver it too.
2: I think that's a really good point actually that that, you, that Rob makes, and, and, and it just reminded me actually of the NPA's the um, Zoom session that we had on um, independence and, and, and what they make of the right review and what it means for them, the implications. And one of the things that, I think it was David Behrman Bear, um, last night who said that independents largely, or the ones he is in contact with, don't, have never even heard of it. It, they've never even heard of the review. They don't even know it's even happened, which is quite staggering, really.
0: Yeah, wasn't it, was it was Jay Bainhorst who said that there was a meeting that they arranged or someone arranged to talk about rights and yeah. no one turned up, no. not a single contractor turned up? Yeah, that's
2: right, yeah. Which is, it tells its own story,
0: doesn't it? I mean, it, But as Rob said, perhaps, and this was mentioned last night as well, because they were... Some question mark questions raised weren't there about well what's the end point of all of this you know what is the business case for all and you mentioned this when we first discussed it Arthur didn't we you know what a, refresh my memory
3: <laughs> what was you know what
0: other than structural reform Arthur yes, you you know,
3: right <laughs> other than <structure, laughs>
0: Arthur's forgotten it's a very good point Arthur no
3: yeah, other other I'm than yeah sure
0: sure <laughs> you, know, you reform the structures yeah. you know for what end what is what is the end point so. Um, you know, more powerful and successful negotiating outcome, yeah, uh, I, I suppose.
3: Exactly. I have to say, maybe I shouldn't admit this, but I hear words like structure and governance, and I just sort of glaze over. And I can imagine a lot of people do. I think that's not the message. I think you have to hang it on uh, the negotiation outcome, like you say, Rob.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right, Arthur, because it's a, it's it's... The question should be, where would you like to be in five years' time? How do you want things to be better? And then how will any of these suggested changes help us to get there and so far i've not heard anybody particularly talk about the professionalizing of a policy function if you don't know what your policies are or you don't understand somebody else's policies how on earth can you position yourself in a in a place to get a a good outcome for the people you are representing
0: yeah it's a really good point i i think we probably it's something for the sector to think about and psnc and, and and simon dukes who's going to take this forward i think you, you're you right, the, the, the debate needs to be framed in such a way that people can see its relevance and importance to them as an individual contractor or, or as an individual group of pharmacies so yeah, maybe not to get too hung up on the 40-20-40 who sits where the councillors, yeah, all that's important but how does this matter why will this matter for me as an individual contractor and yeah, where do I want to be in five years time and maybe that's the the key to getting engagement, but it it's it's worrying that if there's a seems to be a low level of engagement right at the beginning, uh, it's going to be quite a challenge I think for for PSNC to to conduct this debate, to get the level of engagement that 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 it needs. Could people have to buy into this, don't they? Yeah,
2: absolutely. And I, I don't. I, I historically, I, independence. I don't think have been. Quick at coming, at get going and getting something. I don't think they've they've tended to. I think Hemant Patel once said they. I interviewed him a few years ago. He said, "Independents need to be mobilised. You know, they need to be. You have to give them a bit of a, a, a jolt. Really, you have to sort of almost ca- cajole them into sort of going and getting it, rather than they won't go and do it on their own off, off their own back. It's they need some kind of yeah.
0: Just maybe two two more points to write to 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 round this section off. I, I think it was James Wood last night said well another reaction from he's felt from his contract his, has received from his contractors is well we've already told you once you know we fed we fed into this this is what kind of right is reflected why do you want to talk to us again okay uh so so that's one issue and the other issue that all the the lpc leads said last night you know this is a very complicated matter needs a lot of thought everybody's really busy you know there's a capacity issue that everybody's struggling with and that includes you know LPC chief officers so to try and create the capacity to give this you know the correct amount of thought at such a busy time and when the, the sector is under so much stress is going to be challenging um, but it's a debate that, that needs to be had. Any other business right Hmm. I actually have something. So some of our our listeners, well, uh, Harry McQuillan and Matt Barkley up in Scotland, uh, think we should have a recipe of the week slot, uh, which I think is an absolutely uh, brilliant idea. I think, why not? So Harry has promised no, to send... It. <laughs> <comes lava> <laughs> no, no, Harry says uh, he'd much prefer Rob to send in his famous custard cream sliced tray bait recipe uh, which he'll do when he gets back from holiday. So, um, this is, uh, and I can see all your heads dropping here. I was going to suggest to our dear listeners if they wanted to send in their favourite recipes and record themselves reading it out, MasterChef style, uh, we'll stick some music behind it and play it on the pod. Because we can't talk about pharmacy all the time, no, surely. That would be not. very boring. Um, Neil, have you got any other business that's better than my F? I'll
2: try my best. Um, well, I've. I saw something in the. Uh, um, I think it was uh, last night. It, it emerged. It emerged that um, quite some rather famous people on this planet, um, Ron, uh, Elon Musk, Ron Musk, Elon Musk, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, Barack Obama, Joe Biden, Kanye West, and so on. They've all had their Twitter accounts hacked um, by in what's believed to be a Bitcoin scam. Um, and. I think one of the the message that appeared on 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 I think it was Elon Musk's uh, Twitter account was everyone is asking me to give back you send $1000 I'll send you $2000 and I believe there's a link there and you, it's obviously some kind of scam um now Jack Dorsey the twi- Twitter CEO said it's been a tough day for us at Twitter and we all feel terrible this has happened <laughs> It would have been a good one for bad week actually at uh, uh, Twitter yeah. but um it just occurred to me that you know why couldn't they have blooming well hacked uh, the Department of Health's Twitter account or Matt Hancock's Twitter account and said something like, "We're very sorry for the funding cuts, uh, community pharmacy. We'd love to give back <laughs> to the profession, so we're going to reverse the cuts and plough in seven billion pounds into the uh, into the sector. That'd be quite good. That'd be nice just one, just a it? just a thought.
0: That, that that would be one solution, quite a far <laughs> out solution <laughs> yeah, to I'm the not funding not cuts, Holding my, my breath. breath. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, yeah. let, let's see where that would go <laughs> then uh rob have you seen anything slightly more sane than that
1: uh so, well sort of if, if you if you've got a spare hour or two there's a very interesting platform that i've come across which is about um about learning uh so have a look at uh futurelearn uh a, a, a learning platform uh on the on the internet um there are all all sorts of universities and um, from over the all over the world and higher institutions of other sort of stripes who've put courses up which are available for free. Um, there's no there's no kind of PhDs or uh, MSCs on there, but introductions to all sorts of topics, uh, obviously written by experts. Um, most of the courses are available for four weeks for nothing, and uh, if you've got a spare five minutes and you want to learn about. I don't know ancient Greece or uh, climate change or um, entrepreneurship. Uh, there'll be a course on there for you. Future Learn, very interesting.
0: Anything there on negotiation and representative
1: reform? Uh, inevitably, Richard. But I've had my I, I know I know all of this. All I need to know about representative organisations. Thanks. Uh, I am not going back there again.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Very grateful you share your wisdom with us, uh, Rob. Uh,
3: Arthur, have you seen anything? Uh, Russia? I'm getting notifications on my phone. they found evidence that Russia interfered in the election last winter. So that, I mean, I haven't yet to okay. have... The RPS election. Yeah, yeah, that one. Yeah. <laughs> so I've yet, I've yet
0: to read <laughs> sure the election. <laughs> okay. tickled but... It wouldn't surprise me if the Russians were all over the RPS elections, (laughs) to be honest. But um, I think before the Russians... uh, Oh, the Russians have cut Rob off on on Zoom (laughs) So I think this is probably an excellent time uh, to to bring us to a close for another week. So thanks, Rob, uh, Neil and Arthur. Pod is available on the Pharmacy Magazine website. All your usual download sites, just search for Talking Pharmacy. Keep sending in your comments to Twitter using the hashtag Talking Pharmacy. Thanks very much for listening and we'll be back again next week.
1: Of course, you'd never find out whether the Russians hacked the RPS election because of GDPR.